and welcome to the 16th session of Islamic Book Reviews uh, with myself, Usama Al-Azami, and my colleague at the University of Edinburgh, Omar and Chelsea. This is a weekly session where I essentially interview Omar on what he's been reading lately. And this week we're dealing with uh, Amanda's book, Fresh Off the Press, uh, Salafism and Traditionalism, Scholarly Authority in Modern Islam. I think Omar has a copyright there. And we're very excited to discuss this book. Um, inshallah, the typical format is that Omar will talk about it for 10 to 15 minutes, and then I will engage in a discussion with him uh, on this book. This happens to be one of those few books where I've actually, I read it before Omar did. Um, and uh, so, inshallah, the discussion will be uh, quite substantive, I hope. And then we like to leave the last 15, 20 minutes for uh, audience Q&A. Um, you can type in the uh, comments uh, on Facebook or in the chat on YouTube. And inshallah, we'll get it uh, at our end, and we'll, we look forward to seeing you uh, at that stage. Um, of course, we're receiving these Q uh, questions and answers throughout, so please do join. But without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to Omar, inshallah. Please. Thank you very much, Usama. Uh, the book is called Salafism and Traditionalism, uh, with, but it, it is somewhat narrow in focus than the title suggests. This kind of thing is normally the, the problem of the, the publisher rather than the author. This is essentially a study of um, Hamad Nasruddin al-Albani, the modern Salafi scholar, and his views on a range of issues and his detractors and the kinds of criticisms he faced, particularly from his, I mean, I would say neo-traditionalist, but the, the terminology here is uh, traditionalist scholars, people like Abu Ghudda al-Bouti, and uh, Habib Rahman al-Azami and so on. Uh, so the book is comprised of seven body chapters and a brief conclusion. Uh, the seven chapters are broken down into or uh, under, the, under the kind of three main rubrics, uh, history, uh, Islamic law, and hadith. Uh, under the history section, you find a broad introduction to traditionalism and Salafism with some clarification of the terminology, some contextual discussion and so on. Uh, then you have a chapter on really Al-Albani's biography, particularly focusing on the early years and his kind of emergence onto the public scene. And finally, in the section on history, uh, you have uh, a discussion of uh, kind of Islam traditional Islamic pedagogy the Ijaza system and the, the, really the didact uh, autodidactism of, of Al Albani. The book reiterates numerous times this traditionalist talking point that he did not really have any teachers or did not have any sustained uh, teacher pupil relationships, perhaps with the exception of his father, whom he, of course, fell out with. Uh, the section on uh, Islamic law looks at Islamic legal pluralism. And then there is a discussion of the Madahib versus textualist approaches to Islamic law. And finally, in the third uh, section of the book on Hadith, you have a discussion of the use of weak Hadith, which was a major bone of contention between Al-Albani and his detractors. And finally, an interesting chapter on kind of reassessing uh, early Hadith uh, criticism, and in particular, Al-Albani's uh, criticism of some narrations in the Sahihain. Uh, so it's, it's a very important contribution, I would say, primarily because we do not have any other uh, English language study, or perhaps even in other European languages, that is uh, as sustained as this one. So no book-length studies previously. 
and it is a preeminently textual study, which is, of course, what you and I like to see, Osama. Uh, so it is very much conversant in these debates between uh, Salafis, and I, I kind of have to unpack that terminology in a bit, and uh, traditionalists, or the group that uh, Jonathan Brown has, has influentially termed late Sunni traditionalists. Uh, and as the, the press itself describes the book, this is really uh, an insider account of these divergences. Uh, it's an insider account, which is interesting, and we'll perhaps return to that to comment, uh, since it is this kind of emic-etic binary is one we've kind of explored and discussed in, in a number of sessions so far. Uh, so I think the, these are the major contributions of the book. It's uh, a sustained study based on serious textual research um, of Al Albani. I mean, I also did, of course, have uh, some disagreements with the book, and we can perhaps return to these in, in a bit. Now, uh, the book, again, is called Salafism and Traditionalism. Now, when speaking about... Uh, the Salafis, or the, the book's focus is not on Salafism generally as a phenomenon. Very important to emphasize this. It is primarily on Al-Albani. I mean, there's very little reference to the views of Al-Albani students, for example. They do feature in and out, and uh, occasionally rather. And also other anti-Methabists, such as Al-Khujandi, who's incorrectly referred to as Al-Khujnadi uh, throughout. Uh, but he focuses on a group referred to as purist Salafis. And purist Salafis are essentially Al-Albani and those, uh, those influenced by him. And I should clarify that you know, this terminology of purist Salafism does, of course, predate Ahmed's uh, book. And most influentially, it's been used by scholars like Henri Lozier. And he's, of course, aware of these debates about the terminology of Salafism. Uh, and... Uh, but he doesn't use it in the same sense that Lozier use it, uses it. He's really referring primarily to Alan Bani. So one of my issues with the book, perhaps, is we do not really get a clear sense of either the chronology or the development of Salafism, or even really necessarily what it means. Now, uh, the, the term is used many times before you really get into a discussion of what it means on page 24, uh, and, you know, there are mentioned references to things like uh, belief in Tawheed al-Uluhiyah, God's exclusive right to be worshipped, uh, which is, you know, a criticism of the cult of saints and so on. And also uh, uh, non-allegorical or non-figurative uh, non interpretation of God's attributes, the sifat. Uh, and these are certainly important features of of pure Salafism in the sense that Henri Lozier would understand this term. But, I mean, I, I think there are aspects of the book that could have, have done with a, a bit more revision, perhaps, before publication. So, for instance, in one part of the book, he says that Salafism, along with modernism and uh, traditionalism, emerges in the mid-19th to the early 20th centuries. Elsewhere in the book, uh, he says that Salafism emerges in the mid-20th century. Elsewhere in the book, he describes Sadiq Hassan Khan as a Salafi. So 
I mean, this really required a bit more unpacking, I think. But uh, as far as textual studies go, it's, it's, I think it's very well done and, and well executed. I made this point that the, the book is described by the publisher and the inside jacket as an insider's kind of reflection on these debates. And I'm sure, Osama, this kind of point will, will, uh, will, we can reflect yeah, on it in our conversation. I, I, mean, I do think he... By the fact yeah, that, I, um, I, yeah, he, he, because he's, he's looking at a different insider perspectives as well. Yes. yes, true. So I do think most of the time he gives Al Albani a fair hearing. So, for instance, uh, he rebuts Hassan al-Saqaf's, uh, or mo he says that most of his uh, claims of Al Albani's self-contradictions are inaccurate. So he is kind of fairly impartial. But I also think there are times when he clearly takes perhaps traditionalism's claims about itself itself at face value without mm -hmm. without interrogation. And there are some historical claims that are just not plausible. So, and it, the, the, the major problems are whenever there is a discussion of scholarly authority or, for instance, pedagogical practices or jazz or things like this, one does not really get much of a sense of historical development. Although when he defines traditionalism from page 18 onwards in particular, uh, he does say that you know it emerges in its mature form in the 13th century. Traditionalism is allegiance to the uh, Sunni legal schools plus uh, commitment to uh, Ash'ari and Maturidi theology and these, these Kalam theological schools, as well as uh, some kind of allegiance to Sufism. But there are claims, for instance, made about the scholarly tradition that only either only apply to the early period or only meaningfully in the early period or right only develop much later. So right. there's a strange claim about uh, the Othmanic uh, Codex, for instance, that it seems, uh, I may be mistaken about this, that Ahmed is suggesting that Othman made the deliberate choice to put it in the consonantal, uh, to leave the consonantal skeleton without voweling and dotting and so on, even to distinguish between the consonants, right. in order to prevent the uninitiated from reading it. Now, this right. does not, is not plausible as, a, as an historical claim. Right, right. Also, ideas about ijaza and teaching, uh, and I think you would have very much benefited. I mean, Garrett Davidson's PhD has been for many years. Of it, it was available as a, you know, it was already famous as a, as a, as a thesis, and I, I remember downloading it from his academia. And we will, of course, do an episode on this very important book now. When it comes to ijaza as well, so I mean. I, he emphasize, I think, overemphasizes uh, that you know one could one's knowledge was only legitimate, and one's knowledge of text was only legitimate insofar as it was received through an isnad. Right. But of course, only a tiny minority of texts, particularly of course the Quran, in terms of reading readings and reading traditions, and uh, the major hadith collections in particular, these are only the only. Well, these are the most important works received through this means of reading through them with a the sheikh and so on with commentary. Right. Now, the great majority of works that, that was not the, that was really not the case. I mean, Ahmed Shamsi in his first book points out, for instance, that Ibn Hajar says already in, in late Mamluk Egypt and Ibn Hajar's context, the only works of Shafi that are still transmitted by Isnad are the Risala and the Kitab Jima Al Alm, which, which is a short epistle or treatise. Right. So, and you know, also the very practical uh, con constraints on, on transmission through reading with the sheikh. I mean, uh, Davidson, uh, Gary Davidson has discussed this and 
you know, even important works might be transmitted through CERD or kind of reading through very hurriedly now. If you speak to any graduate of the traditional, well, I say traditional, but of course it's undergone substantial change in the 19th and 20th centuries of uh, Madras education. Right. You know, in South Asia, for instance, and, and you're often more familiar with this tradition than I am, then reading through the Hadith books, of course, does, you know, does begin slowly and with discussion right. of the meaning of particular and passing of right. Isnads. But by the end, because you have to read all it's, of the six books, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a man shouting into a microphone in a room of 300 people, you know, so how meaningful is this kind of traditional transmission? Now, right. one, one final point, Usama, uh, before, we, before we return sure. to the discussion, um, and it is a valuable book, I, I would strongly encourage people to read it because it is the only sustained study we have of Al-Albani, and as a, as, as a textual account of these divergences, it's important, although I do have uh, some serious disagreements with it as well. Um, so finally, uh, for instance, he talks about Ismail Ansari, student of Muhammad bin Ibrahim, uh, so a, a Wahhabi author essentially, uh, who criticizes Al-Albani. So, you know, El Albani, Ahmed, I think, makes it very clear, is not representative of the Salafi tradition as, as a whole, if you like, and he does have a typology of Salafism. Uh, and perhaps we can return to that. But Ismail al Ansari critiques uh, El Albani by saying that he has done taqlid of the printers. Why? A particular report in Tabari is transmitted from a chap called uh, Al Qama bin Marthad. Now, because of a printing error, this instead reads Al-Qama an Marthad. And of course, uh, Labani couldn't identify these narrators and therefore he, he rules that it's a, it's a dubious hadith. Uh, but of course, Tabari's work is not, is not transmitted by Isnad. And in fact, it was more or less lost as Ahmed al-Shamsi has, has shown, uh, you know, until it was patiently reconstructed in the 20th century and then reprinted, having not been available to scholars in places like Egypt for many centuries. Uh, now, uh, and a final, final point, I should say, he does recognize, I think somewhat begrudgingly, because Ahmed is, is a traditionalist, one could say, that Albani did, uh, is, is responsible for a paradigm shift in the field of Hadith studies, absolutely. And before him, this practice of tada'if and tasheeh, you know, consistently throughout books became a norm, even among his traditionalist critics. And as he concludes in, in the seventh chapter, uh, Al-Albani forced his detractors to hit the books. If you wanted to, to, to criticize him, you had to engage yeah. in your due, due diligence. That's something people weren't really doing before Al-Albani, or at least yeah. not, not in the same way. Absolutely. Um, no, that's uh, fascinating, Omar. I mean, um, there are so many dimensions to engage in this book, and uh, I uh, agree with you that it's a valuable contribution in as much as it really is, in my view, the most detailed treatment of Al-Albani's ideas, um, particularly his sort of engagement with the issues of religious authority um, that we find today. I mean, Henri Lozier does, um, in his uh, Making a Salafism uh, book, also sort of uh, spend a lot of time on Al-Albani as this figure who characterizes how, what he describes as the ideologization of Salafism. So the Salafism as a manhaj, as a total system, which uh, he traces in a sense to the emulation of the Muslim Brotherhood, sort of a, a response of the Muslim Brotherhood. So there are fascinating sort of like different directions in which um, uh, there is influence happening. And, uh, uh, you know, in that regard, even in this book, you get this 
flavor of, um, you know, Abdul Fattah Abu Ghudda is one of the main sort of, uh, one of several interlocutors, so to speak. And, and yes, I should say, them. since you mentioned Abu Ghudda, yeah. Allah Yirahamu, uh, that one of the distinctive characteristics you could say of Al Albani, I mean, I think he, he unfairly uh, or inaccurately ca characterizes Salafism along with progressivism and feminism and other Muslim kind of groups as anti clerical, which I think mm. is simply not the case. You know, Salafis are never critical of ulama, qua ulama, or categorically critical, critical of scholars. Now, they are critical of a certain kind of approach to scholarship. Yeah. But Al Albani is certainly radical in the sense that he is far less deferential even than yeah. scholars like Ibn Baz and Ibn Uthaymeen to certain scholarly conventions. Yeah. Uh, so he, he's, I mean, in 1975, he writes his major work against Abu Ghudda. <laughs> and he says, work? I thought it was like a pamphlet. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's his, but it's his most sustained kind right. of response right. to Abu Ghudda. Right. So in that sense, and uh, Ahmed says, I mean, he, like Ibn Hazm, he, he had quite um, a fierce pen. He, <laughs> he, he says, wa qata lisanak, Abu Ghudda, you know, may God paralyze your hand and you know, cut off your tongue and, and so on. Um, now, yes, he was, and I think this was just a personality. You find lots of examples of personalities of this kind in, in pre-modern Islamic Abi history as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, um, for, you know, and even when it comes to you know anti-taqlid uh, rhetoric and anti-methodism, he describes uh, Al Albani fairly, of course, as stridently and kind of consistently uh, a principled anti-methodist. Now, Bin Baz and Ibn Uthaymeen will often make these statements about the importance of Nusrus, uh, but he he says that these are really rhetorical flourishes because mm -hmm. the Wahhabi tradition, on the whole, has been, and certainly until recent times, has been Hanbali. Uh, and Albani had interesting encounters. And you know, they also point out that which is something which Albani just like quite anomalously, I think, in Islamic history, um, seems to be extremely hostile to as well. Yeah. Well, we should then we should then say something about his views on this. Now, Ahmed suggests that Al Albani's views on taqlid are, and I quote, a messy bag of contradictions. Uh, which is somewhat uncharitable. So he suggests that Al-Albani's views matured. Al-Albani, of course, uh, I should just say by way of uh, comprehensiveness, born 1914 in, in Skoda in Albania. My, his father migrates to Damascus uh, when, when uh, the figure later known as King Zog comes to power in 1925. Uh, and uh, he's in Damascus. Uh, my, uh, he's in Medina and he moves to Medina to, uh, to Medina University to teach some very influential years of his between 1961 and 1963 because of various controversies he gets involved in with the Wahhabi uh, kind of establishment. His contract is not renewed. Uh, in 1979, he moves to Amman uh, until, and that's where he, he continues to live until he passes away in 1999. In 1990, he also receives the King Faisal Prize. Uh, now, he, in, 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 in Amman, uh, I might suggest, this is where he kind of really attracted a serious amount of, of students and really built up a movement. Now, Al Albani kind of emerges on the public scene in the 1950s when he begins giving public lessons, and he's a kind of gadfly to the traditionalists. Whom, whom his main opponents are the traditionalists, even though he writes against the Khwen and others. Mm. 
Indeed, in 1982, the Ikhwan, according to Ahmed, tried to have him exiled from Jordan, but instead only succeeded in having him uh, banned from public teaching. Uh, but Ahmed suggests his views on, on taqlid are contradictory. Why? Because he is kind of very much against taqlid. And he says that laymen, of course, cannot interpret scriptural sources on their own. This is a specialist exercise. Uh, but he characterizes the approach of laymen instead as ittiba'. Why? Because they do not follow without evidence. They know that I'm following this view because there is a sahih hadith and so on and so forth. Now, Ahmed says that his views are contradictory because in other places in his corpus, uh, Albani says that one, you know, one will always at one time or another be a muqallid in different contexts. I don't think this is, you know, there are yeah, other ways of reading this. Really. Yeah, there are other ways that, of, you know, of reading this. Uh, it, it's about trying to be, um, trying to avoid taqlid where you can, you know. Yes, and so he, he even goes to the point where he says that this distinction between ittiba' and taqlid is basically semantic. And I, I don't agree that this is the case. Why? Because... Al-Albani would say, uh, I mean, he says you shouldn't enter into complex discussions of proof and so on with armies, but uh, unlike most classical usulis who say that there's no obligation at all on a mufti to present their evidence or their argument, they just have to give a verdict to the layman, Al-Albani would say, no, you do have to say this is based on, on a hadith in Bukhari or what have you. Uh, so that's that's one is, kind of one point. Is that a major innovation? I mean, you have this long tradition of kind of anti-taqlid writing within the Hanbali method in particular, for example, which uh, I don't know if it really uh, it gives me the... Um, I get the impression that it kind of sets them apart or sets a figure like Ibn Hazm apart, so to speak, that they are very insistent that, no, you have to engage... Or you can't just adhere to the tradition of the method. So yes, and... As well. Yeah, so... Ibn Hazm, incidentally, is an interesting one. Mm. Uh, and, you know, one of the criticisms that Al-Bani constantly attracted was that he is, you know, more purist than the purists in the sense that he even reproaches Ibn Hazm for his grading of hadith and even says about Ibn Taymiyyah's Al-Kalam al-Tayyib that one cannot take for granted the fact that all the hadith in it are, uh, you know, authentic. Now, what really riled the, the Wahhabi establishment uh, was a range of views. Uh, Al-Albani was certainly... Uh, much more pronounced in his anti-Methabism. And I mean, he really introduced a major shift in the Saudi religious scene. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, even the Jama'a Salafi al-Muhtasiba and so on, who in 1965 get in trouble for attacking this mannequin shop display because of the prohibition of images. But uh, his views, for instance, that the covering of the face is not wedged for women, as most kind of forcefully ex expressed in his Arad al-Mufhim, mm -hmm. uh, also Jilbab al-Mar'a al-Muslim, I believe. Yes. But that's not really a refutation in the same way. Mm -hmm. And uh, other views as well. Uh, and he criticized Ibn Abd al-Wahhab, saying he is Salafi in his Aqidah, but not in his uh, legal opinions, which again, he was he was very much a Hanbali. Which is a translation of the concept of Salafism in a sense um, in the modern period because Madhab al-Salaf was basically you know um, an Aqidah Madhab historically as far as I can tell. Yes but we, we should uh, you know defer to Lozier when, when he suggests that you know Salafism was not used as a move a, a label to refer to a movement until the 20th century. 
even mean, if you might find here or there references to Salafi and this, you, this kind I mean, this is where uh, I need to look at the Lozier-Griffel debate, uh, you know, in more detail. But you know, this is where I, I find that kind of. It depends on how you define a movement, right? Is a madhab a movement, right? Yeah, but but what Lozier is saying on yeah. you know contra, uh, against Griffel is that. Yeah. As intellectual historians, we should be interested in how people are actually using these labels right. as opposed to developing our own kind of conceptual vocabulary. And, sure. and why this is important is, you know, Lozier's approach. Is, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah is in that sense, you know, uh, spearheading a movement against uh, the non-Salafis in Aqidah terms. Yes, certainly. Yeah. I mean, uh, and even even when it comes to law, he, he shows kind of similar, you know, departing from the teachings of the four schools and so on. But yeah, okay. yeah. I'm going to Lozier. Yeah, I mean, I'm more comfortable with Lozier. Why? Because it, 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 it's it's a kind of protection against anachronism and anachronistic claims. And of course, the history, you know, the intellectual discussion uh, history of Salafis is full of these, you know, anachronistic problematic claims. And I, I, this is one aspect of the book where I, I think it, uh, Ahmed's book could have been tightened up a bit. Um, now, uh, so he fell out, out with, the, with the Saudis for these reasons. For instance, Kitab al-Tawheed of Ibn Abdul Wahab is, is well known for containing some, some, some spurious hadith. Right. Uh, now, when it comes to explaining, well, why exactly is it that I, one of Albani's major contributions, of course, and he was very prolific writing more than 200 books, hmm. uh, one of his major contributions was the systematic assessment of so, so substantial amount of the corpus of hadith and tasheeh and, and tadaif. And Ahmed tries to account for why, and this is, this is a point I did find on Kinnitinsk as well, why is it he says that we don't find this in, you know, generally in, in pre-modern works or even much discussion of Asanid yeah. outside of hadith contexts? He says that, well, this is because prior to the age of print, the people reading these books were scholars and therefore were equipped to evaluate, no, were eval equipped to evaluate that SNE themselves. I mean, it's clearly not, <laughs> clearly not the case. And Sadiqi, you know, we've mentioned this several times in, in yeah. conversation with Sadiqi, Sadiqi talks about this insulation and distinction between uh, knowledge of hadith and knowledge of, of law. So this is where, I mean, Omar, I, I entirely agree with you. And, and I think um, in a sense that, um, you know, Ahmed's work would have been enriched considerably by engagement with certain books, which actually, I mean, you mentioned Garrett Davidson's dissertation. I know the book came out last year, um, but uh, in, in the case of uh, Ahmed Shamsi's book, I mean, Ahmed's book oh, really both of them, yeah. very valuable, I think, um, in, uh, because, uh, you know, as I read it, um, and, and on the historical front, it would have been very helpful, and both of them, as you put it, as I read it, um, traditionalism, or what I in my sort of um, own work generally referred to as neo-traditionalism is in many respects kind of the um, afterglow of um, the sort of post-classical tradition to use Ahmed Shamsi's. Yes, um, and, and in the book there is a you know there is that one place in the book uh, early on where he suggests these movements emerge really in the modern period but then he says right. that traditionalism was there in its mature form in the in the 13th century yes. so you know and, and the way in which you know as you've discussed. I, I think in these regards, um, those are some of the uh, sort of less compelling parts of the book, I absolutely agree, in that a lot of these sorts of points are top of the course when it comes to the neo-traditionalist worldview. But, but I think that there is so much more complexity when you go and actually explore the writings of neo-traditionalists. People like um, Abu Ghudda, 
are so much more sophisticated in their understanding of the classical tradition, they engage with ulum uh, al-hadith and so on, that um, you know that richness unfortunately is not conveyed as much in this text. Um, the sort of stuff that Garrett Davidson is talking about is you know, um, well known to the Katanis of the world, for example, in Fahras um, al-Faharis and, and the way in which the later scholars over the last, you know, uh, basically since the 400s onwards, um, hadith is basically ijazah. People aren't really transmitting, uh, aside through, from, through sard, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I think you may have mentioned in the past Ahmad ibn Abi Talib al-Hajjar, Abu al-Abbas, the, mm, yes. the famous sort of like... Um, I should say also uh, very interesting and I, I await the pub, you know important uh, publication outcomes of this project Mohammed Gharaiba in uh, in in the Berlin is working on uh, kind of post-classical hadith stuff yeah. including and he's very interested in Ibn Salah and the afterlives of his muqaddimah so that should be very exciting but you know the impression one gets generally uh, is very much that this kind of serious engagement with Asanid was very much the exception. Uh, I mean, of, of course, in, in Mamluk, Egypt and Syria, you have a real flourishing because you have Hadith institutions set up yeah. in the Zengit period. So you do have this kind of passing of Isnads. Uh, and then some, some, uh, some of the time it, it does have an impact on law, as with Al Aini, who we've seen in the previous session, was this kind of maverick Hanafi because of his expertise or interest in Hadith. Yeah. I mean, Asuyuti, in his time, he basically speaks of, uh, you know, he goes out of his way to revive the practice of Imla al-Hadith, for example. And um, as far as I understand, I mean, uh, I can't remember the distinction between Imla and Sard, perhaps you can remind me, but, you know, the fact that he's having to do that is an illustration of the inqita', so to speak, of that practice. Yes, I, when it comes to inqita', again, we must be cautious because we cannot take these claims at face value, you know, in the same way that every generation mourns that how the society is going to the dogs in, in, among right. the younger generation, right. you know. Right. Had, had, and scholars in any field will make this, this claim. And it, you know, you, we must kind of interrogate it before we, we can accept it as generally accurate. But this is our impression for certainly the Ottoman Ottoman period, and we await Raiba's important research to kind of see see if this makes sense. Now, what's the name of his uh, book, by the way? Uh, or... it's, uh, it's not a book. So this is a project that has started a few months ago, and it's you know he's, he has published some some papers and things on this. Uh, but I, I did just want to make one other point, which is that, sure. um, you know, just with respect to, so as you mentioned, um, things like Sama' and, and those are the sorts of things that I had the good fortune of being able to do through um, studies with a scholar in Oxford, uh, Muhammad Akram al Nadwi. So we refer to him as Sheikh Akram. Uh, so he's, he's my teacher, and uh, I, I had the good fortune of hearing the entirety of Sahih al Bukhari with him. Now, that's a big book, right? Um, you're looking at 60 hours of you know, classroom time where, and that's if it's just reading. We did it on, in the course of a year and we got through maybe a third of the book. And then we took out you know, two full days where we sat uh, and just heard the rest of the book, Sama'an. So you know, that's the standard practice in a sense. And um, Sahih al-Bukhari, given its great importance, is one of the few books where there is Sama' muttasil still in the world. But it's usually yeah. through fairly long chains, and the short chains will, you know, generally be a mix of sama and ijaza, for example. Yes. So there'll be sort of tabakat where it's just ijaza, and then you know someone basically renews sama in, in, in that process, so to speak. Yeah. So, yeah. so 
I mean, he, for instance, he discusses this idea of Sariqatul Hadith. But this is only really a phenomenon that's meaningful in the Asr al-Ruwaya when people yes. were kind of reporting and traveling to collect hadith and so on. Post-canonization in this mm -hmm. period, Garrett uh, Davidson is talking about in his remarkable book is not, you know, this criticism does not really apply in the same way. Yes, and so on, other, other, other yeah. forms of transmission. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, so... Perhaps to, to focus on other other kind of aspects of this very interesting and important book. I wanted to consider briefly mm -hmm. the ethic ethnic dimension of this as well. Sure. So, um, and and I think it's quite refreshing. I, I'm just sort of I, I've started reading um, Joseph Kaminsky's recent book um, on uh, Islam liberalism ontology, and uh, you know he writes in the um, sort of uh, prefatory note that he feels very strongly that Muslim scholars you know write with their Muslim voice. Uh, and so he says, whenever I, I mention the Prophet's name in this book, I'm going to say, peace and blessings be upon him. Right? Oh, right. And uh, this is something which, um, you know, I remember sort of early on uh, in my academic career. Um, I'm still, still fairly early in my academic career, of course. But, um, you know, basically being able to sometimes relatively directly by senior scholars um, that, uh, you know, that's not something you should do. You should... You know, I, I was told, for example, that uh, don't let your religious identity affect your scholarship. Now, this isn't, I mean, I felt uh, I experienced this more in the US. I, I, I don't believe I ever heard anyone say this to me in the UK. Oddly enough, it might be uh, we have a longer tradition of theolo theological scholarship. I don't know. But um, I, I find I find this aspect of interior, uh, well, uh, sort of uh, an inside conversation, uh, the emic perspective, quite sort of um, refreshing in many respects, and and I'd, I'd like I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. <laughs> yes, no, I I you know I find it wonderful that that one can speak uh, in this voice in in one you know comfortable in one's own skin as it were. Mm. But it's really a question of degree, I think. Mm. A question of degree. So there are points where I feel it's sometimes taken too far in this book. So, for instance, uh, one one other example that comes to mind, right. and this this one is a real howl. <laughs> so, he says that you know anyone who is critical of traditionalist practices is implicitly criticizing the Quran and the Hadith corpus, which is a strange mm. claim to make. Why? Because, because yeah, implicitly he is critiquing their their modes of transmission, right. which is not a not really a serious critique. Why? Because I mean, sure. these works preservation is a product of processes that were you know, de de developed before there was such a thing as traditionalism. Yeah. You know, before Al-Ash'ari was <laughs> a glint in his father's eye even. Yeah. And when Ash'arite and other traditionalist scholars did preserve them, they weren't pre preserving them qua Ash'arites or qua traditionalists. Right. So uh, I, I think yeah, it's I mean, a question of degree. So Again, this this is I don't think that's a case of um, that, so you know I, I don't think that's because of emic scholarship you know I think that's okay, because of enough. not really um, sort of being thoroughly enough familiar with the work of someone like Ahmed Shamsi and the early uh, history of the development of the Quran and the Hadith uh, corpus and its codification and all the rest of it I mean. Um, this is obviously it's it's a slightly different conversation. I mean, I'm going to take us back briefly uh, to yes. uh, Johnny's book from a couple of weeks ago, and um, you know he talks about the idea of tradition, and he's saying that well, 
the way in which McIntyre and Assad, particularly Assad, speak of tradition is far too capacious uh, and it's not good enough for a historian who that needs to sort of track these significant shifts to the point which, uh, to, uh, you know, to which you can say that this is no longer the same tradition. It's undergone such a radical transformation that it's a different tradition. Mm. And, you know, there I think, you know, it's a very, because uh, Junaid uh, in his uh, sort of uh, kind Facebook post afterwards um, commending our session, Jazakallah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, was saying that uh, this was a book written Pache uh, Patricia Crona. Uh, this is a book uh, by a post-colonial scholar for other post-colonial scholars, <laughs> or post, you know, people who, Muslims, are, who live I in think that condition. As well. Yeah. Now, so, now, but my my point with respect to uh, what he says there is that he says uh, I have to draw up the sentence, but he basically says for the historian this is no, you know, not good enough. And you remember, I kind of was dissenting somewhat from uh, the suggestion that it's a radical transformation, because, of course, I'm thinking as a sort of not not strictly speaking as a, as a historian, but I'm thinking um, properly speaking as a participant in the Islamic tradition. That you know, can this? Yes, there are significant transitions and transformations that a historian can assess on the basis of you know, the way in which what uh, which. Um, one defines a, tr uh, a transformation, but in other respects, there are continuities that allow for a Muslim in the modern period to say, yes, despite that, this is the same tradition. And, uh, you know, the alternative to that, and this is where I think these ethic emic discussions are absolutely inescapable. The alternative to that is to say that, well, I as a historian, like if Junaid Khadri was a non-Muslim, non-post-colonial scholar making that sort of an argument, there may have been accusations leveled at him, which I, I would find problematic, uh, you know, if they were done uncritically, that, uh, you know, wait, who, why do you have the right to adjudicate whether this is the same tradition or not? I'm a Muslim, you know, I'm just sort of speaking in someone else's voice. I'm a Muslim and I believe this is the same tradition because what you're saying suggests to me I'm no longer connected to the Quran and the Sunnah, right? It's oh. undergone such a radical transformation. So that's why, you know, there, there are sort of major stakes here. And uh, just to come back to Ahmad's book, I, I think that, um, you know, good emic scholarship, and we've had this conversation slightly before, is like Ibn Taymiyyah, who's this, you know, encyclopedic figure um, who really has, uh, to quote a Zahabi, you know, uh, or something along those lines. Like he's, he's got it all at his fingertips and he's able to engage in this sort of really fascinating diachronic analysis, not perfect, we're human beings, diachronic analysis of transformations that's good emic scholarship he's doing it because he is very driven yeah. to uh, follow this stuff but also he can have that sort of uh, dispassionate uh, assessment to recognize that look you know yes i'm driven by certain uh, things but i'm not like muhammad zadil kothari <laughs> that i'm going to you know uh, in, to put it uncharitably twist the tradition to conform to my um, preconceived notions about these sorts of things and there's a delicate balancing act to be had Yes, yeah, so since you mentioned Kothari, I mean, in the book's seventh chapter on the kind of reassessment of, uh, of Hadith scholarship, he, I, he recognizes clearly, as, as does Brown in his book on canonization, that uh, Al Albani is by no means the first person to dispute the authenticity of some narrations in Bukhari or Muslim. Right. Al-Albani is actually less critical of Bukhari. I mean, fewer than 10 reports he criticizes, but Muslim he's more critical of. Because of uh, this, especially this Isnad 
Abu Zubair and Jabir, and he talks about how Hadith critics like an Nasa'i uh, criticize Abu Zubair for Tadlis, and also mm -hmm. Ibn Hazm entertains right. this view. Right. Now, I think in, in the book there is an acknowledgement, to some extent at least, of a double standard in this traditionalist criticism of Al Albani. Why? Because I, not only is it obvious that Dara Qutni and, and so on had made similar criticisms, but even among modern traditionalists, uh, such as uh, the Ghomari brothers and Al Kothari, even, you have similar, similar points. Now, yeah. Ahmed distinguishes their criticisms by saying, well, Al Albani is threatening the whole scholarly enterprise in their view. Uh, unlike these others, he, but from he, my Benny perspective, Al Albani. Same about them, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but from my perspective, which is an insider one, Al Albani is offering conscientious, isnad-based criticisms, whereas people like Al Kothari are driven by purely sectarian impulses. I mean, and he acknowledges that the Hanafis have long-standing kind of complex <laughs> relationships. Sure. With these collections, so why is it okay to to criticize the reports in the Sahihain because you're a Hanafi, but it's unacceptable to criticize them because you you find fault for whatever reason with their Sanid? This this, so this is, is a question one could pose. And, and and this is let me let me sort of um, provide something of a counterpoint here. I mean, yes, I think all of us, especially those of us who've read Kesh Kothari's work, get frustrated with his underhanded style, you know, manner of argumentation very often. And some of this stuff. I was just having a conversation with a very um, learned scholar of hadith, someone I consider to teach Muhammad Ziyad al-Tibla, about the way in which, like, the way in which Zahid al-Kafari, and, and he's got a list of examples, so to speak, would, you know, use language in such ambiguous uh, fashion or in, in such a way that would, um, you know, allow for his own uh, very distinctive perspective to be able to sort of slip in uh, under the guise of being, um, you know, a genuine engagement with the classical tradition. Now the thing is, um, you described the this him as being driven by sectarian motives, and I, I you know, I, I think um, I wouldn't disagree with that, but I would just say that you know, again, how do you define sectarian, right? Sure. Uh, you know, with respect, I, to I can the, concede that yeah, point yeah. that you know he would see this as benevolently motivated or something. But not not just that. It's a slightly different point, which is, in a sense, what. Uh, you know, I would much more appreciate uh, Zahid al-Kothari to be open about what he's doing, okay, instead of being sort of someone who's concealing it. But that enterprise of privileging the Hanafi tradition over the Ahad Hadith is a well-established tradition. You don't need to, you know, arguably, you know, a Shafi put everyone on the defensive, right? But you can still say, no, I'm going to defend this, I'm going to uphold it. It's been the tradition for the last, you know, thousand years since a Shafi, so who cares, right? And yes. you can you can make arguments such as look the vast majority of you know uh, Muslims are Hanafi, <laughs> which is probably not uh, inaccurate. Uh, they probably have been for much of history, which because of the the Khilafa, whether it's the Ottomans or the later Abbasids adopting the Hanafi method, very often. And as a consequence of that, you cannot say that this method represents you know a misguidance. Otherwise, God has basically misguided the Ummah for the last you know. Whatever, and so you can make those sorts of, you know, these are again emic arguments, but then you can be very honest about the fact that look, I am prioritizing the corpus of traditions that come from Abu Hanifa, uh, and that's something which I just want to do, right? And you may say sure. that I'm going to engage in a sort of um, proper analysis of Isnad, etc., 
you can do that. I don't. I don't. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's a different approach. Now, Ahmed acknowledges. He said, he recognizes that El Albani has engendered this real paradigm shift in Hadith studies. Uh, he says, I mean, often it has led to shallow scholarship. So some of El Albani's students, for instance, uh, following his uh, what's it, Taqrib Sunnah Bayna Yaday Al Ummah, have, have yeah. even produced, uh, you know, Sahih Sahih Al Bukhari in one case, or Sahih Al Muwatta, which is, you know, understandably controversial. Um, but uh, and he he also mentions that I mean, this this was a real cause of tension. I mean, the split between or the the kind of major disagreement that lasted many decades between Abu Ghuddah and Al-Bani mm -hmm. uh, is a result of this uh, third edition published in 1961 of Al-Bani's comments on uh, on the Sharh al-Aqid al-Tahawiyya and he, he, he comments on hadith of Bukhari that this is hadith, sahih and so on uh, and later when they meet in 1969 in Zuhair al-Shawish's House owner of yeah. the Maktab al Islami, founded in 1957, which really gives Al Albani a platform. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, you know, he's accused of by others in the, in the gathering of of really undermining the uh, status of the Sahihain in front of right. lay persons. Right. I mean, that's a fascinating discussion as well. Um, I, you know, uh, Qaradawi is present and. Um, I, I find fascinating that you know uh, Abdul Fattah Buddha refers to him as the Ustad. I I would have thought um, Abdul Fattah Buddha is a bit older than Qaradawi. Uh, oh, so, but in any case, I mean, um, you know, we get this impression throughout this book that uh, Albani was a bit of a personality, shall we say? And it might be interesting, sort of psychological, um, psycho good and Phil, yes, yeah, psycho historic uh, history, so to speak, to to try and uh, understand exactly. Um, you know, the nature of the personality type that generates... Uh, yes, but I mean, look, it's, the, the guy was, Arabi, well, know. kicked out of his house by his father for not being a staunch Hanafi. <laughs> right, right. And you, you can say, well, yes, it's Al Bani's <laughs> fault because he was unyielding, but also, yeah. you know, I, but, I would but, hope... I mean, that... but that also signals something. I mean, there might be a heritability to this kind of like staunchness, right? Perhaps, um, yes. But look, uh, I mean... Uh, you know, people like Al-Albani uh, and, of course, you have... Uh, yeah, Abu Ghudda is interesting. Like he's, I, I read, uh, and I think I have a copy of it. It's in storage somewhere, of his short booklet. It's um, it's not really a book. It's a booklet, um, which is a critique of Al-Albani. But um, the style, you know, doesn't seem anywhere near as caustic. And for me, what's more interesting than these sorts of personality-driven sort of disagreements, which, you know, have happened throughout Islamic history, right? I mean, Malik refers to Muhammad ibn Ishaq as Dajjal min al Dajjajila. When, when the other uh, so Al Albani, I should mention just quickly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I laughed out loud when I read that Al Albani referred to Mahmoud Saeed Mamdur, right. his Egyptian survey critic, as right. <laughs> that Egyptian loser. <laughs> so I'm very immature. You, you were saying stuff. Anyway, so, yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, this sort of stuff, munafarat al-aqran, that, you know, when, when contemporaries are arguing with each other, you don't take it too seriously, because, obviously, it's just personalities very often. But yes. I think there's just so much, uh, there was, th there's a lot that is still uncovered in this text that allows for, inshallah, future researchers to go that Definitely. extra mile. He, he's done a great service in identifying some very key people, uh, and, and uh, also kind of the contours of debates yeah. 
I mean, uh, in terms of, for instance, you know, commenting on all, all of Al Albani's, shall we say, um, idiosyncratic legal views, whether it's the, the issue of Al Dhahab Al Muhallaq, so this kind of uh, ringed gold, right, whether right. it's bracelets or rings. Right. which it seems nobody except Al Albani, even Al Albani's students don't accept this, yes, this idea yes. that it's prohibited. Yes. Uh, or his, his claim that, you know, a 20 rak'ah taraweeh is not just, not the sunnah, but it is a bid'ah, hmm. and is therefore, one would assume, prohibited. In, in, in defense of him, like, that's what Umar uh, calls it, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, well, not in the same sense. Of course, of course. Uh, and uh, indeed, for both of these views, Ismail al-Ansari uh, writes dedicated uh, work on each of right. these issues refuting right. al-Albani. And, and, and is... sometimes appealing to communal practice. So what I found really interesting is the ways in which Al-Albani diverges from uh, what Ahmed calls uh, this kind of Saudi Salafism, mm. really kind of Najdi-style Najdi yeah. Wahhabism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, he transforms it. Now, he dismisses in his account of Al-Albani's fascinating years in, uh, in Medina in 61 mm. to 63. And mm. Al-Albani remembers that time fondly, and he even leaves his leaves his library to the yeah. University of Medina. Right. Uh, he says that, well, it was just Al-Albani's caustic personality in particular his views that attracted criticism and you know, any claim that it is jealousy that led to his contract not being renew, re renewed is, is incorrect, or he suggests this at least. I, I do think uh, rivalry and jealousy do play a role because here you have this mm. brilliant hadith, uh, young, well, not young by that point, but brilliant hadith scholar who really does rock the boat and attracts a very devoted following, even though his time in Medina is incredibly brief. Right. Uh, and yet, you know, notwithstanding its briefness, it does really transform the Saudi religious scene. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I'm not, you know, uh, well researched enough on this. I know that, you know, a number of scholars, uh, Wachemakas and uh, Lozier and others, have sort of reflected on this. I mean, it, I, I just find fascinating that um, we don't know. <laughs> From my impression is we don't know exactly why. You, you know, we don't have any definitive statement of it, but yeah, I mean, it, I think yeah, but I, I would say just none of these explanations are mutually exclusive. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, his controversial views, the fact that Muhammad ibn Ibrahim, although by the time he was effectively ejected, his contract renewal, this Muhammad ibn Ibrahim passes away in 1969, yeah, I believe. So this would have been before his. So yeah, but, but even even that, I mean, the fact that uh, he kind of went up against someone like him uh, to a certain extent. Uh, would not have ingratiated him to the broader religious establishment. He's Ibrahim, the most important, uh, arguably the most important uh, scholar of uh, sort of. Well, I mean, he was. He was the first chief mufti yeah. of the yeah. third yeah. Saudi state, so you know he and, was, and, and that, also that position, enjoyed tremendous uh, prestige. Yes. Yeah, and, and I believe like there wasn't another chief mufti until Bin Baz, like for years afterwards or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, this is discussed in Nabil Moulin's excellent book, Clerics of Islam. Okay. We should probably address some of the, the questions. And we comments. should. I, I, so we apologize, I mean, um, to, to those of us uh, to, who've been kind enough to ask questions and they're uh, sort of the usual suspects. Jazakumullah um, <coughs> We're going to <coughs> address that and apologize that we didn't get there quick enough. So let's start with Yahya Haider. Sure. Haider, if we can put it up on the screen. I'm just going to read it on uh, for the uh, people who are listening on the podcast. Um, perhaps Albani's position on Ijazas was reinforced by his anti-Sufi inclinations rather than technical hadith pedagogy. Possibly there's a personal dimension to it. Interesting. 
I mean, I would agree that suddenly there is a, there is a personal dimension to it. Uh, and Ahmed does make this connection between Sufi, Asanid, or Silsilas, and uh, you know, the kind of pedagogical, Isnad-based transmission of, of traditionalism. I, and there's an interesting divergence between them because, of course, you know, any, any hadith critic worth his salt will notice that Sufi silsilas are manifest fabrications and not even competently executed ones. Uh, and yet this kind of paradigm remains important to Sufism. But, but I, I would say, if I can add to that, that, um, you know, the ijazah in, in the Sawuf, uh, you know, Garrett Davidson talks about different types of ijazah, I can't remember which chapter now, but, um, you know, it's very clear that you have ijazah amma, um, you have ijazah fil or tadris, you have uh, ijazah khassa, of course, and the ijazah in tasawuf is, a, uh, you know, a species of ijazah khassa, ultimately. And so, you know, ijazah amma, uh, there are so many people in every generation um, who basically said things like, ajastu li ahli zamani, right? Um, this, this goes back hundreds of years, incidentally, and, um, you know, Garrett David... Well, it seems to be a post-classical development, really. Um, I mean, as far as I'm aware, uh, Ibn Hajar, in his time, there were people doing this. So, yeah, although that's is, very anyway. late. I mean, Ibn Hajar is uh, just, you know, 50 years century. before his 15th century, so to speak. So, but, um, uh, you know, as a consequence of that, you know, what is the date ijazah in any case? I mean, I have ijazah, just as an example, just to throw a remark. Um, I have uh, ijazah from uh, a number of scholars for my unborn children. Um, because when they wrote the ijazah, Sheikh Nidam al Yaqubi uh, is mujiz for my two my two year old and my nine month old. Um, and same with Sheikh Yusuf al Qaradawi, just as an example. I, I have my name on a lot of istida'at for ijazat. Mm. And that means every time these scholars who are Muslimin, Hafidahumullah, who are going and basically collecting ijazas from other scholars, uh, these are all ijazat amma, I'm all automatically included in that. And those also include li meaning among the scholars. Mm. This is the post-classical tradition. Like this is this yeah. is perfectly normal. Uh, and we can unpick yeah. that more in the episode and so on on Garrett's yeah, sure. wonderful book. Yes, that, that would be wonderful. Uh, I'm yeah. going to learn a so great deal on that. It's perhaps we can look at John's. Yes, so John's well, others are really of... comments more than questions. But okay. so perhaps we can focus on the first one. Okay, sure. So. I'll just read it, if that's all right. How sure. does the book define or understand Salafism? I think Salafis themselves would seriously object to Lozier's attempt to bid'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a'a
hmm. was a kind of reference to to a theological approach uh you know long before the 20th century so i i wouldn't he's i so, so yeah. this is where i mean uh, just to give a slightly different perspective I, I largely agree with what you said this is where to a certain extent this is a challenge of you know the engagement in an historical scholarship versus an emnic perspective because um you know in a sense, they do cover a lot of the same ground. So when someone like Lozier is basically saying that, uh, you know, the stuff is a new um, sort of uh, manifestation, it's a manifestation of a new movement, and the movement's raised on detra is to say, we are going back to the past. Right? You know, those two things can appear to conflict. And I, I would just suggest that, look, at the end of the day, Lozier is very self-consciously engaging in a historical endeavor of you know creating a typology defining his terms in a very particular way and according to those typologies and the terms of his discussion um you know it's reasonable for him to say what he's saying uh, i i wouldn't you know because saying he's basically calling salafism a bid'ah is a, an emic observation it's not one he's trying to make yeah but also why, why could salafis not agree with the observations that you know there weren't people consistently, systematically labeling themselves as Salafi prior to the 20th century. That is, Precisely. for me, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, demonstrably true. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, it's it's an interesting, interesting. Yeah. No, question. I mean, I, I was just rereading um, sort of the uh, one of his in his Dail Tarikh al Islam, I think, uh, biography of Ibn Taymiyyah, and he says, you know, Salafiyyah, for example. So these sorts of ideas are present, but they very clearly mean something quite different. Uh, not, not massively different, but I mean, here he's very clearly talking about aqidah. Um, he's not talking about, you know, um, uh, fiqh uh, or other things from what I can tell. And uh, in a sense, what Alani does is he broadens that field. Um, it's not just madhab salaf refers to, you know, mm. the way in which the al-hadith um, yeah. preserved a certain approach to yeah but i mean ultimately for me the labels people use and self-designations and all of this and you know cross-pollination of movements i mean all of this is is important to intellectual historians you know whether their writing is insiders or outsiders or whatever you like uh, exactly. um, yeah i'm just uh <laughs> i mean some of this as you say is a bit of an observation i'm just gonna should i perhaps read um i'm just going to very quickly read uh, up some of these if that's all right, just for the sake of uh, completion, and then <clears throat> inshallah, I will um, hand over to you, Omar, to talk about next week's book, inshallah. But um, so, Jan Islam, Jazakallah khairan, making plenty of uh, comments. Shouldn't all Muslims feel comfortable in their skin? Maybe academia has used objectivity and professionalism as a mask for the colonial and now new colonial enterprise. I mean, this is, of, of course, uh, a uh, that's kind of a, a very uh, common kind of post colonial uh, claim that's made. And, and I think, you know, I don't. Uh, if it's all right with you, Omar, I'm just going to comment on this briefly then. Sure. Um, but it, it, and, and you can feel free to add in your thoughts. Um, you know, these these are very, very sort of richly uh, textured debates, I think, which have been going on in the post-colonial literature for quite a while, um, ever since Edward Said. But, but I think um, it, it's put somewhat boldly here, so to speak. But um, but yeah, I mean, there, there are some challenges to, to these questions. We can perhaps address them uh, in future opportunities. And apologies, I didn't approach this earlier. And you also say um, even being open to Kothay's method doesn't imply Albani or anyone uh, or anyone's return to the direct text. Re Albani's return to the direct text is against the tradition. The Sunnah Hadith is tradition too, as we, uh, is it not? Yes, but I mean, El Albani stresses, uh, if you like, unmediated reading of tradition, and this is yeah, why, as a number of scholars, difference. including Jonathan Brown, have commented, you know, 
unmediated readings of the Hadith corpus do often produce anomalous opinions, and the, the classic example being based on his reading of some Hadith, Al-Bani's prohibiting of ringed gold jewelry. Uh, and sometimes Ahmed suggests that Al-Albani lacks, or purest Salafism, lacks a kind of hermeneutics. I wouldn't say this is true. I would say that, I, so Al-Albani is explicit, as Ahmed recognizes, when it comes to the al muhallaq that the arm of, uh, of permissibility of gold for women does not contradict the khas of the prohibition of specifically ringed, ringed gold. Uh, so there is a, you can say it's a, it's a rudimentary hermeneutic or something like this. Can, can I also uh, suggest that, you know, all um, hermeneutics will have these kind of anomalous positions that arise. It's just that in, in Albani's case, and I'm not entirely sure why I have to think through this, they seem to be, you know, somewhat frequent in some respects, but, uh, and longer traditions kind of uh, iron out these issues. So you think of, you know, uh, a Shafi's position on the question of... Women's uh, access to know, the mosque. He interprets the hadith, uh, uh, let, uh, don't, you know, don't forbid the Allah from uh, attending masajid as, you know, you cannot forbid them from making hajj specifically. Uh, and within the constellation of his, you know, wider interpretation, the corpse didn't make sense, but for an outsider, it might be a bit weird. But also, I was thinking something along the lines of the fact that you can marry um, your uh, bintu zina, for example, yes. or waladu zina in the case of women. And, yes, um, and those so, sorts of things are quite sort of, you know, those are the sorts of things that make other madhahib sort of pull their hair, hair out, so to speak. But, yeah. but it's it's consistent with the hermeneutic that he's adopted. Yes, and it, in Kisha Ali, and especially in marriage and slavery, has really emphasised that mm. these kinds of hermeneutic commitments developed in competition with other kind of jurists do sometimes lead one to, you know, insist on the maintaining consistency across one positions that lead to the production of absurd right. Right. views. And this is no less true of Al-Albani, pardon yeah. me, than it is of the Madahib. Yeah. So, you know, maybe... Or, maybe or the, you know, the Madahib, but also people always make fun of the Zahiris, but, you know, uh, the idea of, you know, Al-Bawl Fil-Ma'ir-Rakid and things like this, you know, pouring urine into a um, sort of stagnant water as being legitimate, but urinating directly into it as not being per permitted. Um, I mean, in terms of the use of the water afterwards. Uh, but, you know, as we've just indicated, there are plenty of places within Madahib that do this sort of thing. And these are somewhat opportunistic uh, pot shots in my estimation. Yeah. And also, why do these absurd results arise? It's because of a commitment to consistency. Right, right. And although Al Albani has been accused of contradicting himself and so on, yeah. Yeah. and there is clearly a consistency to his project, yeah. Yeah. undoubtedly. And, and, you know, whatever opinion one entertains of Al-Bani, uh, you know, of course, one should acknowledge, as Ahmed does, that he did really engender a paradigm shift in Hadith studies. And I think also one can respect, as I certainly do, his uh, conscientiousness and, and his, his very principled consistency. Uh, I mean, I think... <laughs> He kind of emerges better in many respects than, than his traditionalist critics, especially as far as, as politics is concerned, because El Albani was a genuine quietist, and this is something we, we can't really talk about anymore, unfortunately, because we're at the end of the we're session. Of time, unfortunately. I mean, this is, uh, but I, I do want to reiterate, uh, in a sense, um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, and, and I 
uh, if you will forgive the sort of self plug, I, I have a book coming out on uh, you know how the ulama responded to the Arab revolutions, and you know a large section of it is about unfortunately the way in which neo traditionists have not really uh, done what one would have, shall we say. I'm, my final comment on that issue is neo the, such neo traditionalists often characterize as quietists, which is not true. Al Albani was a quietist. He was jailed by the Syrian regime for six months and he was arrested in 1967. He was put under government surveillance. Uh, but, you know, inciting soldiers to kill people is not being uh, apolitical or quietist. It is not even being complicit. It is being involved and participating. But I will leave, I will leave that there. Uh, I'm going to ask you, Amr, if you can go ahead and introduce the book for next week, inshallah. Sure. So next week... I'm excited to announce we will be discussing a book that came out in June 2020, uh, Christopher Melchert's Before Sufism, uh, Early Islamic Renunciant Piety. And, uh, you know, I, I, hope, I hope you all join us in this discussion. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting book. Thank you for a wonderful session. I look forward to seeing people in a week's time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.